Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. Competition in banking has greatly decreased in the past 20 years, with banking and technology giants using proprietary technology and data to tilt the playing field. Despite many new players in our industry, these firms don't always reach the scale that is needed to compete effectively and potentially changing the economic inequality, social responsiveness, and even the speed of innovation that is needed. My guest in the Banking Transform podcast is James Besson, lecturer at Boston University School of Law and best-selling author of the new book, The New Goliaths. Jim shares his perspective on innovation and competitive balance that can be restored not by breaking up large corporations, but by compelling these firms to democratize their data and technology for others in the industry. So welcome to the show today, Jim. You know, information technology has transformed our economy and brought innovations to the marketplace faster than ever before. The question is whether these technologies, data, and insights have become the domain of only the biggest organizations, stifling competition, innovation, the potential for equality, and even social responsibility. So, Jim, I reached to you after reading an article that was written by MIT Technology Review about your research, and, and then I read your book. And it really is interesting, the, the book, The New Goliath, How Corporations Use Software to Dominate Industries, Kill Innovation, and Undermine Regulation. You, you can certainly say that's a bit of a controversial title, but can you share the foundation of your findings? Well, first, thanks for having me. Yeah, so, well, it, there's a... This summarizes maybe five years of research, so by myself and by many other people. It's become very clear that in the last 10, 20 years, uh, there's a whole new generation of proprietary software platforms being built by large firms. Um, and I'm not just talking big tech here. We're talking big banks, we're talking big auto companies, we're talking Walmart, we're talking, uh, but also Amazon and Google. Um, the, you know, digital technology has been, well, the PC is what, uh, uh, 50 years, 40 years old now. <laughs> the iPhone 15 years this week. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Um, so the, um, you know, in, in, in the early days, it was a very heady, positive thing that, that the low cost computing uh, was opening up all sorts of possibilities to all sorts of people, big and small. In fact, uh, some of the small firms uh, really benefited the most from some of the early innovations. But these these large systems are a new and uh, different beast, uh, and and it's huge. It's it's you know you look at uh, firms spending on own developed software. Uh, it's well over two hundred billion dollars a year now. Big big investment. Um, and many of the effects of this are positive, but there are some downsides as well. So that, that's sort of what the, the book explores. Um, I started by noticing that, or exploring the question of, of whether the, the you know, a number of economists had noticed that uh, industries were becoming more dominant in, in their, firms becoming more dominant in their industry, the top firms. Uh, their their market share the market share of the top four firms 
has increased overall over the last 30 to 50 years. Um, uh, but wasn't sure what that meant, um, but I wondered whether it had anything to do with these large software systems. And the initial re research said, yeah, there's something going on here. Uh, the, the, the firms that invest, the industries where they're making these investments are exactly the ones where uh, the um, industry concentration, as we call it, has, has risen. Um, so I started to tease apart, you know, what's, what's going on? What, what, uh, what, what is this? So one thing we connected was, well, the firms have also become more persistent that it, in the 90s and 80s, uh, firms were disrupted. The, you know, there would be some new upstart comes along and Walmart came along and disrupted Sears, um, you know, and that's really reversed over the last 20 years. The, the, the probability of disruption has gone way down. So again, another, another puzzle. Uh, but what I, when I started to connect the dots, what I was seeing was sort of a commonality that what, what these large system do, systems do is enable big firms to manage complexity, to handle greater variety, to handle more product features, to target more finely target products to customers and to advertise and reach those customers. Um, so Walmart stores stock over 100,000 items. Uh, if, if you want to have a big advantage in retail, one-stop shopping is one way to do that. And by stocking all those items and tracking them well, they're able to uh, streamline their logistics so that they can get the goods to the stores a quickly and b at a lower cost so they can charge lower prices and they can respond more rapidly as they detect demand changes and they've developed uh, this whole system so that decisions tend to be made not by so much by centralized merchandise buyers but also by store managers and in many cases suppliers so it becomes this very flexible it's not just the technology, but the technology is the core of this whole new system of, of taking advantage of greater variety and flexibility to deliver what customers want. And you see similar ways of managing complexity in banking, in manufactured goods like automobiles, which are now you know, largely software driven, um, as well as the standard you know, target marketing of Google and Facebook. So maybe I should pause here and let you get a word in. Well, no, it's interesting because you mentioned the banking industry. You know, as in many industries, we have seen new firms enter the marketplace at, at an unprecedented pace. These firms are addressing the needs, the unmet needs in the marketplace, usually leveraging digital technologies that are not yet being leveraged by legacy firms. But are you saying that the majority of these firms, these startups, these innovators and such, that they'll ultimately fail either because they won't reach scale or that they'll actually be acquired by these same big firms that you're speaking of? This is one of the downsides of these new, of these new systems. The, the systems have allowed big firms to dominate their industries. They're bringing great, I mean, they're, they're doing this because they're bringing great benefits to consumers. But at the same time, one of the critical things is they make it much harder for an innovative startup firm to grow. Um, so here's a, a, a key aspect of what, let me just back up a second, a, you know, a key aspect of what drives productivity growth in the economy. It's not just that some firms improve their own productivity. It's actually more so that the, the more productive firms grow faster. 
and eventually they'll re- they may replace the in- large incumbent firms. Uh, one of the most disturbing findings is that over the last 20 years, this growth rate of uh, highly productive firms has slowed. And that, in fact, accounts for much of the pr- slowdown in productivity growth that we've seen in the aggregate economy. Now, I don't know about banking specifically, but you know what we see in the numbers generally for technology-based firms and for all firms is that you know the the rate of entry hasn't slowed. We still get f- new firms coming and coming in with new ideas, and often they're more productive. But what we do see is productive firms are growing much slower, maybe half the rate as firms uh, uh, that were equally productive twenty years ago. Well, it's interesting because in the banking industry, you know, we see the biggest banks getting bigger. We also see them actually growing at a pace that is certainly slower than what they used to be able to do, but still they have the scale that allows them to perform at a, at a rate that is unachievable by many of the, the smaller fintechs. Now, we have the big tech firms that are also playing in banking, but really what you're talking about, and I think you referenced in, in your book as the superstar economy and the mo- movement from open to closed capitalism, what you're saying is, that the big firms are actually slowing the rate of innovation, slowing the rate of growth, and slowing the rate of of actually transforming an industry because they're so big, correct? Yeah, yeah. So they may be growing fast, and they may be innovating. Uh, And in fact, you know, the evidence shows that the larger firms are becoming uh, more innovative at a faster rate than medium or smaller firms. In fact, there's a growing gap between the biggest firm, you know, in terms of, you know, just look at revenues per employee, there's a growing gap between what the top firms, largest firms make uh, in revenue per employee and everybody else. Um, and that's that's troubling. What, what that says in a way is that those firms are able to access technology that the rest of the market can't access. And if you look at what's involved in these large systems, that's very much the case. So that the you know the big firms have access to data, to software systems, to you know organizations that can take advantage of of this new uh, sort of technology that the little guys can't, for the most part. So I mean, I was just going to sum up and say you know. Even though you've got some great companies come along with important innovations, and sometimes, yeah, they get bought out, uh, but what we're seeing is they're growing more slowly. It takes longer for a startup to to raise funds. Once it raises funds, it takes longer for it to be acquired or to go public. Um, it's all stretched out, uh, and that slow growth uh, hurts the economy. Well, even name recognition. You know, you, you have a really, you have a, a lot of small companies that have done well. But if you go in the marketplace and ask people, you know, do you know what Acorns is? Many people don't know that Acorns is, a, is an investment and savings platform in the banking industry. Many people may not know what Chime is, but they know what Chase is. They know what Wells Fargo is. They know what Bank of America is. So that's even there. You know, one of the biggest challenges that companies are facing today is, is reaching the efficiency possible with just like digital technology, it's just possible to do it. But the problem is those mid-sized firms that you're talking about, it costs a lot of money. So while firms can become more efficient, 
they still have legacy systems and delivery networks they have to deal with. Is there another case where the biggest firms have an advantage being able to spread these costs over a bigger platform and the ability to automate the back office faster as well? Yeah, well, it's scale and it's scope. They're able, you know, I mean, my argument is really about scope. They're able to offer more products and, uh, you know, address more different consumers. And yeah, I mean, that, that, that's exactly part of the story. You know, it's interesting, too, because while Chase is still building physical facilities, they still are able to spread those costs across a much greater platform. And, and you know, you know, one other thing you bring up in your book, and, and it's interesting because we've talked about it in the past in banking, but it's something we forget about often and when we're talking about the cost of delivery, that the cost of compliance is, is pretty much a fixed cost. For almost any organization, it's, it's the same amount of money to to manage the the compliance issues of Amazon as is a small the small retailer. I would assume that because the fact that it's a fixed cost, this obviously falls the heaviest again on the smaller players, the mid sized organizations, and that that makes it so that just the efficiency ratio, just the effectiveness of being able to hit the types of you know back office automation and scale that's needed, it, it again puts those smaller innovative firms and those mid-sized organizations at a tremendous disadvantage. Now, I'm going to ask you a question here about that. those mid-sized. Do you see a way where mid-sized organizations can combine and possibly, you know, play, play the same level playing field as the big guys or is it it's just is the field just going away from them or the big are just getting so big that you can't acquire enough mid-sized organizations to bring the scale that the big guys have yeah i i i think that's one possibility um in the book i talk about another one which is uh the the notion that the biggest firms may open up so we've seen examples of this in the past and also currently um, so what I, I call it unbundling, or it's been called unbundling in the case of IBM. So there was this famous case where, you know, IBM used to sell the computers and the software together and it became very difficult both for other computer vendors because IBM was bigger. It had more software written for it. Uh, and it, be, it became very difficult for, uh, there was really no independent software industry because, you know, you could write it for IBM, but it wouldn't run on the CDC computer or whatever, yeah. Honeywell computer. Um, well, under threat from of the Justice Department for over an antitrust concern, in 1969, IBM unbundled it. It allowed, it allowed you to buy the hardware without the software, and they sold the software separately. And that essentially created the modern independent software com- uh, industry. Um, and that was a huge, huge boost. And while you think that might have hurt IBM, it actually turned out to be hugely profitable for IBM. They now had more com- competitors in software, but every t- you know every competitor in software improved the, the the value of the hardware they were selling, and the 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 size of the entire market just exploded. Um, the, a modern day example of that, several examples of that, come from Amazon. So Amazon developed this tremendous in-house IT capability. They had to, to handle their, their website, you know, right. handle transactions rapidly, you know, large numbers of transactions. 
So, and this gave, they, they realized around 2004 that this gave them a real competitive advantage. Well, most companies, I think, would probably say competitive advantage, let's hold on to it as tight as we can. They took another idea. They said, let's open it up. Let's standardize it so there's a standard API and let anybody come and uh, use our IT facilities for a fee, of course, but they created the cloud industry. And that too has been hugely profitable for them, but also hugely productive because you know, the, the tiniest company in the world can gain access to very sophisticated data storage, data handling, IT processing, AI, you know, y- you name it. There's just a, a tremendous uh, ability to, you know, so that Amazon has the scale, but they make it available for a fee to everybody yep. else. So the middle and uh, big size players uh, can get involved in the app. Now they they do a similar thing with their logistics and their marketplace. Yep. Um, there, I I won't say that there aren't some concerns and issues, antitrust possibilities. Uh, Amazon has to walk a narrow line between being a competitor and a supplier. Yep. Uh, but uh, I, you know I think that's a that's been a, a hugely beneficial thing. And what I would like to see, and I think what may solve some of these problems is. Uh, to spread that more broadly. Now, in you know, one of the big things in the U.S. in banking, I, I understand. Now, you guys understand more about this than I do. I think um, is access to customer data that the, the fintech companies have just been struggling. They're getting more of it, but there's no standard API. Uh, not every fintech can get what it needs, right. uh, and it's burdensome. Um, you know, there's the there's no reason um, the, the 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 bank should be uh, well. They, you know, they obviously feel they have a proprietary advantage from that from all that data, and they do. They they do tremendous oh, things yeah. with it. Uh, they you know they can make different credit offerings to different consumers for home equity or for credit cards and target them, and uh, God knows what they do with it. Um, but if if customers can get their own data and make it easily portable to an, uh, another platform, they could do many more things that they can't get from the the large banks. And I think that that may be the frontier of where things need to open up in banking. So let's take a short break here, and I'm going to get back to that whole issue of the democratization of data. You know, expanding what Amazon done with the democratization of technology and innovation, because I think there's a lot there. So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsors of this podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. Welcome back to Banking Transform. So, I'm joined today by James Besson, lecturer at Boston University School of Law and author of the book, The New Goliath. You have been discussing the potential impact on competition, innovation, and social norms as the biggest organization in every industry are using technology 
and data to create an imbalance in the marketplace. So before the break, Jim, we were discussing how there's an ability to, to buy modern technologies and automate businesses, and there may even be a, a potential to democratize that process. But really, at the, at the core of everything, it's the data and insights that these firms hold. I mean, a, a Chase, for instance, has so much data on their customer base that a smaller mid-sized firm would never have, certainly not a fintech. Does this magnify the advantage of the big firms? And is there a potential, as you mentioned before the break, to maybe democratize the data and insights, maybe by a firm such as Google that has so much insights, or even Apple or an Amazon, to make it so everybody's on a little bit more of a playing field, certainly at a cost, they, they make money on it, but to make it so that there's a little bit of a level playing field with regard to what you know about me, the consumer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think that's what I was talking about in the in the Amazon example. I would stress people do talk a lot about data. It's not just the data. And it's not even just the technology. So, you know, in the late 1980s, Sears was um you know, the the, the lead retailer. It had it was also a technology pioneer. Sears pioneered e-commerce. They had the Prodigy Network. Uh, Sears was IBM's largest customer. Um, and Sears certainly had a ton of data. Um, what, what Walmart was able to do, though, was use the data and marry it to a different sort of organization. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just the software. It wasn't just the data. It was the whole thing married with, you know, a different way of organizing and, and conducting business activity. But you're right. The, the, the potential is there um, for firms to, to, essentially they have these internal platforms and it's about opening up the platforms. Uh, that's, what, that's what Amazon did when it took its internal IT platforms and made them into the AWS, Amazon Web Services. Yeah, it's interesting because when you look at data, we we also often look at just the, oh, do I hold it in my file, not hold it in my file. But, you know, when you look at payments, payments now is more dominated by the PayPal's, the, the um, Amazon's, where people are buying. And that data is kept internal. So what happens is financial institutions, when they used to have it on their credit card, would get the individual transactions and know where they where people were buying things, what they were buying, their preferences. Well, now it just shows up as Amazon. They don't they don't see the individual detail. So it really becomes even a, a bigger challenge. You know, one thing you really bring up in the book quite a bit is that this imbalance, this this ownership of technology and insight and data and, and, and overall um, automation impacts the consumer, both economically and from a social responsibility perspective. We sometimes lose that. Can you explain a little bit about how this really does impact the consumer? Yeah. So, well, that certainly affects the consumer. So, I mean, one of the things is this technology allows consumers to get much greater choice. Uh, choice is, to some extent, a double-edged sword. It means it it becomes burdensome in some ways to you know when you have a hundred thousand items in the store, you know what or you you go online and there's a you know what, what was it I, I saw in the Wall Street Journal one hundred eighty different garlic presses on uh, Amazon. <laughs> and yeah, some of those I, are, that were, were fake. It, yeah. Apparently, the Chinese have figured out some way of gaming Amazon a little bit. Um, but still, there's there's a lot of choice. There's a lot of lack of information about the quality of products. Uh, so you know it it 
provide some real benefits. I, you know, we, I can buy things today that I didn't even know existed before in, in the old retail environment. Um, so there are some great benefits. Uh, there are some social impacts, though, that uh, may be less obvious. So one is on wages. Um, it turns out, you know, there's this talent war people talk about. And it turns out that the large firms with these large systems uh, not only hire more talented people, they pay them more. Uh, they'll pay more for, you know, a, a job that has the same characteristics. And I'm talking substantially more, um, 15, 20, 30% more. Wow. Uh, so it, A, it makes, it may make it more difficult for small companies to hire what, who they need. Uh, B, it leads to growing inequality that, you know, you have these people who work at the elite firms and you got everybody else and we're seeing growing gaps. And those, by the way, are also geographical gaps because of where the big companies hire um, tends to be large cities, coastal. Um, that's one thing. Right. Another implication is these systems get it, it becomes much more difficult for government to do its job in terms of regulating systems uh, when products are based on software and services are based on software. So the, one of the prime examples is the Volkswagen diesel emissions scandal where, um, you know, a few lines of code and, you know, of the hundreds of thousands of lines of, of software code in a modern automobile, somebody, you know, they got a few engineers to tweak the code so they could fake out uh, an emissions test and the car would operate at low levels of emissions when it was being tested and the car could tell, the computers would tell, you know, by the angle of the wheels, the speed, how long has it been driving? Uh, and when they detected they were no longer in an emissions test, they would boost up the nitrous, you know, nitrogen oxide emissions 20 fold, you know? So the car had a lot more performance all of a sudden, but was, <laughs> Uh, polluting, you know, 20 times as much. Um, and, you know, the, the, this went on for years and the the, uh, the government regulators both in here and, and, and across the world uh, had no clue what was going on. You know, given the, the somewhat dismal painting of a picture you've done around the competition, the innovation, the social norms created by the centralization of technology, data, and innovation, and power, you still don't believe, at least in your book and in what I've written or read, that you believe these firms should be broken up by the government. Uh, you you reference already possibly better solutions than that. Um, what what are the threats maybe of the government doing what they tend to do, which is like pulling the china shop, just doing what comes easy, which is you know saying, oh, we got to step, we got to break up Amazon, we got to break up Google, we got to break up Chase or Bank of America. Well, there's certainly people in Congress and in in, uh, in the administration too who might take that view. Um, it, that may happen. Uh, it's not going to solve the problem. I think that's the the first yeah. you know the first answer. Uh, breaking up a company doesn't solve the problem. Somebody's going to still be there and able to build a large system that that can dominate. But the other thing is th th these these systems are real benefits to society. It's a real benefit to society for Amazon to have its enormous web services division, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it's a question of how that, 
whether that benefit is being tied to proprietary control or whether it's open in a way. And so my, my solution is is this thing I've been talking about that it you know there are a number of ways that the government can nudge companies to open up. In many cases, it's going to be in the company's own interest. There's no there's no doubt that when Amazon opened up web services, it turned out to be hugely profitable to them. Um, maybe even more beneficial to its customers, but still, you know, there there was private re- good private reason to do that. But, the you know there are various government powers that can encourage that one is uh, intellectual property controls things like employee non-compete agreements which are being now used more and more aggressively to keep talented knowledgeable people talent at one company from going to another uh, we need to we need to spread the technology and spread the knowledge more aggressively and that that's really what's at the root of most of the social problems so it doesn't take you know, a sledgehammer to shatter things to solve that problem. It takes, you know, some well-crafted, uh, and in some cases may perhaps punitive measures to encourage, or in some cases to force firms to to share their data, um, to uh, to open their technology in a way. You know, that's interesting because as, as you were speaking about this, I didn't realize or I didn't put together possibly, even though I've read your book, the fact that you know, you, you, while you can split up companies, physical assets, you you can't all of a sudden say, okay, we got we to gotta split up your technology. We got to split up what, what your systems say. That That's impossible to do. So I think you're right that splitting up may not get the solution that they want. It may make the company smaller, but that doesn't make them any less smart. It doesn't make their data any less valuable, or it's not a way yeah. to do that. Yeah. And it really gets down to, and, and we've seen some, providers actually democratize what they what they offer to the marketplace and make a good future that it just i think we're looking at maybe new revenue opportunities as well as new ways to compete so how do you, do you see the future actually moving in this direction i mean as you look look at Chris, <laughs> nobody wants to take the risk of the crystal ball anymore because we know what that gets you yeah well i'd like to think it moves in that direction right. um I think it's encouraging that we see companies like Amazon doing it themselves. And, and there are others. There's certainly yeah. others. Yeah. Um, there's uh, people at Harvard Business School and at the Equestrian Business School at BU, Boston University, you know, that are sort of advocating this is a good business uh, strategy for firms. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in, in the policy arena, a lot of the policy has been moving in the wrong direction. They're, you know, they're giving firms greater controls over employees' knowledge. Um, that's disappointing. Right. Um, uh, but, you know, will it happen? I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to hazard a guess. I'd like to see it happen. Yeah. It's certainly conceivable it could happen. The government tends to um, not always make the best. They make quick and not good. We've seen this too much recently, and I think you're right to to try to predict what because this is a this can become a governmental thing in one way or the other. It's not going to be driven by the consumer as much as by the government, and and I think you know you you have all bets are off when that takes place. So so you know, Jim, how do listeners buy your book? It's available at Amazon or at Yale or other common outlets yeah yep and this is what it looks like it's a great book i i suggest my readers my listeners i should say get this book because it, it really it, it it 
It was interesting because it was taking a different perspective than we hear in our industry quite a bit. Jim really digs into a number of industries. It's not focused on banking. You really have to open your mind to how this impacts the banking industry. But Jim, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Bank and Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoyed today's show, please take some time to give our show a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my research on the Digital Bank Report and their articles I'm writing on the financial brand. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Haslidge, audio engineer, Sean Roll Hoffman, and video producer, Will Prince. I'm your host, Jim Bruce. Until next time, remember, concentration of power in any industry is not the preferred outcome for the consumers or business itself. Democratization is the answer. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.